we're going to have our guest today, Bishop Cox. If you could stand, everybody stand and give him a big hand today and welcome him. He is our district bishop of the Northern California, Nevada region, along with Sister Margaret Cox here today. If you would just wave and we have a special gift for you from our church that we wanted to give you here. So uh, my beautiful wife has that. And Bishop, take your liberty. I shall do that, Pastor. God bless you. Thank you. How sweet that is. Let's give the Lord a good hand. Always give Jesus your best applause. He's the one that deserves all the applause entirely. So we might as well give him the very best applause that we have. Well, I'm not going to preach on what I preached over at the other church um, because I didn't feel led to do that. So, uh, The churches that we've pastored, God has always blessed us, and we had multiple sessions. And I would preach the same sermon on Sunday morning both times, and then I would preach something different on Sunday night. Um, but I didn't feel like preaching the same sermon. I felt like God led me in this direction. So... Uh, if that's okay, Pastor, I'm going to just obey God and preach. I know you guys are sister churches and all that kind of stuff, and that's really wonderful. But this is the message that I felt like God was leading me to preach to you for this congregation. So we're going to go in this direction. Uh, I do want to say hello to Pastor Scott. I just so appreciate him being here. He told me he was going to be here, but I don't believe anything he tells me. And no, that's not true. That's not true. He told me he was going to be here today, so I was looking for him and was happy to see him come in. And I always like for my wife to, to greet the congregation. If you'll take a minute, babe, and just testify, I'll use that as an opportunity to get a drink of water, too. It's my lovely wife, Margaret. We've been together for 50, um, 52 years. <laughs> The Lord is so good, and I thank you for the gift. I love presents, any kind of presents. I remember one time Bishop came to me, and he said, you know, maybe for Christmas this year, we'll just buy for the kids. And I go, you know, that better never come out of your mouth again. I better never hear that come out of your mouth again. The kids won't get presents, but I'm going to get a present. If, and so I'm thankful for that. And I love the movie War Room. We went to see that in the theater. You know, and at that time, people were crying and had a, you know, a real moving, touching time with that movie and so he would lean over and he goes are you crying margaret and i go no he goes are you crying yet and i go no and he goes you're a hard woman margaret you're a hard woman but now if the woman would have died i would have cried that would have made me feel bad but uh, maybe and i'm just so thankful to be here and it, i didn't realize it's been three years since we've been here 2022 almost four years and so i'm glad to be here now so Praise the Lord. I'm just so excited and, and happy. Uh, we've taken a little change in direction in our ministry, which I was uh, ready for. I was serving on a national committee and an international committee, which I wanted to let go because it was taking too much of my time and taking me away from my passion, which is uh, pastoring our district church and preaching for our churches. And it caused me to get behind on the sixth tour. We're on our, we are just finishing our sixth tour, our sixth pass through all of our district churches, and I should have been done with it probably eight months ago and uh, got so tied up in the other stuff, I, I couldn't finish. So in the last newsletter I sent out, I, I checked, and I just had nine churches left to have everything finished, and uh, so I was just going to take them one at a time right down the line, 
And a uh, pastor called me soon after that and said, boy, this would be a great Sunday for us. Can you come? And I said, I'm delighted to do it that way. And then some other pastors started calling. I was supposed to have everything done by the third Sunday in August. And now we're pushed all the way back to the middle of December. And we're starting our seventh tour uh, mixed in with our sixth tour at the same time. So when uh, Pastor Steve called and said, you're going to be with Pastor Rick in the afternoon. Why don't you come over and preach for us in the morning? Which was perfect because I was trying to figure out, uh, I don't miss church on Sunday morning, but the distance that we leave, wherever I went to church over there, I would have to leave as soon as worship was over. So we were going to have to get up and walk out, whatever church we were in, and we're uncomfortable doing that. So when Pastor Steve said, come over and preach for us in the morning, that was perfect. But uh, we've already finished our Tour 6 service with them, so they were actually a Tour 7 service, and this is a Tour 6 service. And you can see how that's going, and we're going to be able to finish everything up and uh, keep moving on in our district church. So we're really excited about all of that. Uh, this sermon is entitled, Jesus is the Man. The subtitle would be, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. There we go. Now, I would like for everybody in the building who will, if you will, I'd like for you to say out loud, Jesus, Jesus. you the man. man. All right, I hope you didn't feel too uncomfortable saying that. Uh, In the English language, that phrase, you the man, is called an American idiom. Uh, I looked it up in the Dictionary of American Idioms. Now, that's not the Dictionary of American Idiots. That's the Dictionary of American Idioms. And what I discovered to my surprise is that this phrase is a term of endearment for someone who is greatly appreciated for their ability. So that's why it's used for athletes and different things like that. And when I made that discovery, I thought, wow, uh, for me to just shout, Jesus, you demand, that's a term of endearment to the one who means more to me than anyone else in life. Uh, That's how much I appreciate him and love him. So I'm able to say it uh, with great delight, and I want to encourage you to do the same because during the sermon, from time to time, I may just ask you again like this. Everybody say, Jesus, Jesus. you the man. And when you say that, you're using it in the very, very best possible way. I'm going to preach to you, if I may, from Ezekiel chapter 22. I'm using the old authorized version. Uh, You can use whatever version you have in your Bible. will be just fine. And we're going to go ahead and keep that up. I'm not going to use verse 31 until just a few minutes later, but let's go ahead and keep that up. Uh, Ezekiel 22, 30 and 31. Now, before I preach, I need to give you a little bit of a backstory, if I may. So just be patient with me, if you will. Uh, This is a prophecy from God. Ezekiel is not the speaker here. God is the speaker. And God spoke to Ezekiel to prophesy these words to the people. And this prophecy came to Ezekiel in the year 593 B.C. Now, what's really amazing about this is that the city of Jerusalem was attacked by Babylon for the second time in 597 B.C., five and a half years before this prophecy came. Now, the first time Jerusalem fell was in 602, and, uh, but then they rebelled. And when they rebelled, they made the king of Babylon furious, and he sent his army back 
And this was the second attack on Jerusalem. This was the attack where they completely destroyed Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was burned to the ground. Not one stone was left on another stone. And all of that happened in this 11-year attack on the city. That started in 597 B.C. and the city finally fell in 586. So this is very significant for you to understand that this prophecy that came to Ezekiel from God happened right in the dead middle of that attack on the city. It was an 11-year attack before the city fell and this prophecy came five and a half years into that attack. So now here is Ezekiel praying and God speaks to him. And God says to Ezekiel, I sought for a man. Uh, The word sought, which is because in the Hebrew, uh, means more than just a passing glance. It means to make a, a diligent search for someone. So God said, I made a diligent search for a man. It wasn't just a passing glance, but a diligent search for a man. The word man that's used here in Hebrew is inushe, which is the common word for man that's used there, which means the same as a, a weak, frail mortal. Take this in now. God said, I was looking diligently for a man, any man among them. And though he be a weak, frail mortal, I wanted him to do two things. Number one, I wanted him to make up the hedge, and number two, I wanted him to stand in the gap before me for the land. Now, contextually, there are two different meanings for make up the hedge and stand in the gap. Now, both of them are referring to a hole in the wall. God is referring to a hole in the defenses, a hole in the wall. But the phrase make up the hedge refers to the people who are inside that are going outside, what we commonly would call church hoppers nowadays, church hoppers. It refers to the people who are inside who should be safe, but they keep squirting out through the hole, and they get outside the wall, and they fall prey to the enemies that are outside the wall. So God was looking for a man who would make up the hedge to keep the people who are inside, inside, so that they didn't get outside, get their heads cut off. And then he goes to stand in the gap. And stand in the gap refers to the enemies who are on the outside who are trying to get inside. You're starting to get a picture now. There's just one gaping hole in the defenses. The enemies knocked a hole in the wall. But now the problem is that there are people who are inside who are going out. And there are people outside who are coming in. And God said, I want to stop that because that is the very thing that will destroy my church. So I'm looking for a man who will, first of all, make up the hedge and keep the people who are inside, inside, and who will stand in the gap to keep the enemies who are outside, outside, and not let them get in where my people are and destroy them. So now you're seeing a picture of what God said he was looking for. I sought for a man, even though he'd be a weak, frail mortal. I searched diligently. I wanted him to keep the inside people who are inside, inside, and, and the enemies who are outside, outside. That I, God said, not the enemy, that I should not destroy it. And we all know a lot about destruction, don't we? We don't have to look very far. We have seen uh, individuals that we love who have destroyed their lives, right? We have seen families that have destroyed their families. Pastor, we have seen churches just self-implode and churches that destroy themselves. We have seen all of this and the prophecy that God sent to Ezekiel in the middle of this attack against Jerusalem was that God did not want to destroy it. It represents his church. 
I do not want to destroy this church. And if I could just find a man, the right man, who would keep the people inside, inside, and keep the enemies outside, outside, then I would not have to destroy it. And then we have the saddest commentary maybe in the whole Bible. God said, but I found none. Couldn't find one. I searched and searched and searched. But I could not find a man. Everybody say, Jesus. Jesus. You the man. man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, anoint this word as it proceeds, starting right now, all the way to the conclusion. Thank you for the privilege, the honor of preaching to this uh, godly audience. And my heart's desire, Father, is that you would open our eyes to see exactly who we have in Jesus Christ and what his destiny is when it comes to the salvation of God's church. And I pray that you would anoint us to believe it and receive it and then participate in it with him for your glory and for our sake in Jesus' name. And everybody said with me, amen. amen. All right, now I'm going to pause right here in the scripture and I'm going to go back to the, the, the first night of our district Kingsman's conference. Now, that's not this year's conference. I'm going back before that. We just came a couple of days ago from this district conference. It was the same preacher who was there. The same kind of thing was happening. And I came in a little bit early to pray. And I slipped into the back of the sanctuary, and I went to the far side, and I knelt down on the very back aisle. I knelt down, and I was just praying. Now, there was a number of other men who were there. I would say maybe a dozen to two dozen men who had come in early. And we were praying, and we were praying all over the sanctuary. I was kneeling down in the back. There were some who were kneeling in the front. There were men who were walking back and forth around the front. There were men who were walking around the sanctuary and praying. And while I was kneeling and praying, I experienced... Uh, what I would call an epiphany. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a vision. I didn't lose consciousness. Uh, it wasn't a trance like Peter experienced in Acts 10, uh, which is the Greek word ecstasis. It's where the English word ecstasy comes from. So the ecstasy that you buy as a drug is a cheap counterfeit for an experience, a real experience that you can have in the presence of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. So, But I experienced, I knew something spiritual was happening, Pastor, because all of a sudden, sudden, it's like everything became slow motion. Has, has that ever happened to you? It was just slow motion. I was in there praying, and everything began to echo. So I, I could hear guys praying, and, and the volume was increased, and it was echoing. And so you know how big the sanctuary is over there. You've been there many times. And I'm kneeling on the back row all the way over in the corner, and I could hear guys praying in the front all the way on the other side of the building. And they're just, you know, preaching in a regular uh, conversational voice, and I could hear them. And it was echoing, and I thought, God, I am having some kind of a spiritual experience here. I'm not sure what this is. And then in the middle of all of this, while I was listening to the prayers of the men around me, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And when he spoke to me, it was in the form of a paraphrase of this verse, Ezekiel 22 and 30. And the Holy Spirit said, I sought for a man, but there was none. I needed someone to make up the hedge and keep my people safe. I needed someone to stand in the gap and keep the enemy out. But I couldn't find one, the Holy Spirit said. Now, I was stunned. I apologize if this offends anybody. But there have been occasions where I was praying and God said things that absolutely stunned me. I didn't expect him to say that. 
And uh, I don't argue with God. I think it's really foolish to disagree with God or get into an arguing match with God. But sometimes I don't understand everything he's telling me. And this was one of them. I, I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now I'm talking to God. Forgive me. Uh, but I said, whoa, wait a minute. I am surrounded by men who are praying. This whole sanctuary is filled with men who are crying out and praying and they're making up the heads, they're standing in the gap and now you're telling me you looked for a man and you couldn't find one. I don't understand this at all. And then the Holy Spirit spoke to me. You probably remember in Psalm 73 when Asaph, Asaph said, God, I don't get this. The wicked are prospering. They live long, fruitful lives. Their children look like they're blessed. They're never punished. I don't understand this at all. And then Asaph said, I went into the sanctuary. When I went into the sanctuary to pray, God spoke to me. And then I understood. And that's where God gave Asaph that discourse on justice and judgment for everybody. I went into the sanctuary. And then I understood. And that, pastor, that is exactly what happened to me in this moment. The Holy Spirit spoke to me and then I understood what he was saying. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me three sentences. I wrote them down immediately so that I would never forget them. This entire sermon this afternoon is based on these three sentences that the Holy Spirit spoke to me. So I know that that's subjective. I know that it's just between me and him. But it's what he told me, and I believe these things. And this was the first sentence that the Holy Spirit said to me. The Holy Spirit said, since Jesus came, this verse has never happened again. Where God looked for a man and could not find one. And it never will happen again. That was the first sentence. The second sentence was much shorter. The Holy Spirit said, because Jesus is the man. Everybody say, Jesus. Jesus. You the man. And then the third sentence the Holy Spirit said to me was this. Since Jesus came. He has been raising up men and women to stand with him. And that's what was happening in the room. It was the process by which God was raising up men and women to stand with him. In making up the hedge to help people who are saved stay in where it's safe. And to stand in the gap to keep the enemies who want to destroy the church on the outside so they can't get in where the true and living church exists, where it is. Now, in our text, the people this prophecy is about and the land this prophecy is about were completely destroyed. Remember what I told you at the beginning. The attack on the city started in 593, in 597. This prophecy came in 593, and the city finally fell in 586. Now, in verse 31, what you see up on the, that's the last verse in this chapter. And here's what God says. Therefore have I. Now, that's written in the past tense in the Hebrew. That means it's already determined. It's already done. Uh, I hope you'll believe me when I tell you, once God makes a determination, that's done. When God determines something is done, it's done. It is finished. Now, they still had another uh, five and a half years before the city finally fell. But in God's mind, it was already determined and it was done because he knew how the story was going to end. He said, therefore, have I poured out mine indignation upon them? 
I have, it's still past tense, consumed them with the fire of my wrath. And then he says this, their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord God. Their own way is what caused them to fall. God said, I'm looking for a man. I need him to make up the hedge. I need him to stand in the gap. I need him to guard this hole. But if the people want to be saved, if they want their church to survive, there has to come a time when the people stop seeking their own way and start willowing, following the way of the man that God has raised up to save them. So they were destroyed. Now, why were they destroyed? The short answer is because Jesus wasn't there. You can just put the two verses together and you can see that. They were destroyed. They fell. Solomon's temple was burned to the ground. Why? Because Jesus wasn't there. Jesus wasn't there to make up the hedge and keep the inside folks in. Jesus was not there to stand in the gap to keep the enemies outside out. So the gap was left unguarded. Demons were able to come in. The enemies were able to come in. The people were going their own way. They stayed in the church if they wanted to or they skipped out of the church if they wanted to. In and out, in and out, in and out. Church hopping, doing whatever they wanted to do. Going their own way. And God said, that's enough. And Jesus destroyed the church. So that church was destroyed because the people went their own way instead of God's way. Now, what does that mean for us today? It means that any church, including this church right here in American Canyon, any church that doesn't have Jesus in it, any church that doesn't have Jesus standing up for it will eventually be destroyed. It's already been determined by God prophetically. If Jesus is not there to plug holes, if he's not there to guard gaps, then that church will eventually wander off. They will go their own way and they will also fall prey to their enemies in their day. They will build their own walls full of holes. They will guard these weak and tottering walls in vain attempts to save themselves. But the wall will fall, the gaps will be breached, the enemy will pour in like a flood, and that church will be destroyed. And all for one reason and one reason alone, Jesus is not there. Jesus being there makes all the difference in the world. Why? Because Jesus is the man. Everybody say, Jesus. Jesus. You the man. George Barna, who is considered the leading church statistician in the country, recently said that 98% of all churches in America can do everything they do without the Holy Spirit in the house. Those churches are being built on plans and programs and parties as opposed to salvations and deliverances and healings. And God has said those churches are already doomed in these last days. Because the spirit of the Lord is not there. This church was destroyed for one reason and one reason only. Jesus was not in the house. And Jesus is the man. Now some of you may be thinking, well, Brother Cox, I'm not sure if I believe all that. 
That sounds like just a little bit much. I think maybe you're being a little extreme in all of these things. Well, pardon me if my response to you is equally aggressive, and my response is, you better believe it. You had better believe it for your own good and for the salvation of your own church. Let me give you two illustrations from the New Testament. The first one comes from Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where the apostle Peter said, Jesus said to the, uh, Jesus said, excuse me, to the apostle Peter, upon this rock, and it's an emphatic, which means that Jesus popped his own chest when he said that. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Personal pronoun. Not Peter's church, not Paul's church, not the Pentecostal church. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The precedent for that is my church, not somebody else's church, Jesus's church. The gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus's church. So it wasn't Peter's church that the gates of hell couldn't prevail against. It was Jesus's church. The Catholic church respectfully has been wrong from the beginning. Apostolic succession doesn't exist. Peter didn't become Jesus. He was just a disciple of Jesus. The Pope that followed him did not become Jesus. There is no such thing as apostolic succession. Jesus is the man. And if you want the church to be saved, it'll be saved because the spirit of Jesus is in the house and not the spirit of anybody else. I love the Apostle Peter. God knows I love the Apostle Peter. But he couldn't even bail himself out of jail. When he got thrown in jail, God had to send an angel from the Lord to bail him out. And when God got him out, the people in the church didn't even believe it was him. And the time may come when we have to go to jail for what we believe. And when that happens, we want the church to be ready to bail us out. <laughs> if I have to go to jail, I expect Margaret to get somebody to come and get me out of jail. Get your pastor out of jail. But you have to be able to see that it's never been man's church it has always been Jesus' church that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. And Jesus is the man. Let me give you another quick illustration out of the New Testament. It happens in Acts chapter 19. This is a story where the apostle Paul was out in the field and there was a demon-possessed man that lived in that community. There was a, a vagabond Jew named Siva uh, who was pretending to be a priest and had the power to cast out demons. And his boys followed him. And his seven sons went out and they found this old demon-possessed man. What we've been able to discover from church history is that he was a little guy. May not have even been five feet tall. And he's looking at him over the top of his eyes and growling. And they were going to cast the demons out. And I want you to listen closely to what they say in this exchange. Here's what they said to him. First of all, they said in verse 15, Jesus I know, this is what the demon said to them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? They said, I adjure you in the name of Jesus. Cast out, be gone. Jesus I know, that's the first chair, the first seat. Paul I know, that's the second chair, second seat. But who are you? That's the third seat. He didn't even know who they were. Can you see the order of things? I want you to understand, please, that the demon knew who Paul was because Paul knew who Jesus was. If Jesus had not been with Paul, that demon would have beat him up too, just like he beat up the seven sons of Siva. So listen closely. Knowing Paul didn't stop the demon. But knowing Jesus did, 
knowing Jesus stopped that demon cold. I hope that this doesn't offend you. But there is not a devil in hell that is afraid of you. Not one. But they're afraid of Jesus. They're afraid of Jesus. You come in the name of Jesus and they will hightail it out of there. If you walk in the spirit of Jesus Christ and you're on the right-hand side of the road, they'll skip over to the left-hand side of the road to try to stay away from you because of the spirit of Jesus Christ that dwells in you. But Jesus is the man, not you. So if you notice what I've done to you there, I took the two greatest leaders in the New Testament church, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul, and showed you from the Scripture that neither one of them is the man. Peter wasn't. Paul wasn't. But Jesus is. And beloved, you better believe it. Because the salvation of you and your family and your church depends on you believing that Jesus is the one and only Savior of the world. He's the Son of the living God. There's no power on heaven or earth or hell that can stand against the authority of this man, Jesus. He has the power to save you not only from all of your sins, but from everything else too. Your sin and everything else too. That's how powerful he is. Everybody say, Jesus. Jesus. You the man. Amen. Now, in my prayer... The second sentence, the Holy Spirit said, Jesus is the man. And I know that that's subjective because the Holy Spirit was telling me that. But we need to turn to the Word of God to get objective truth. The Word of God is called axiomatic. That means that it's the same for everybody in this building. What the Word of God means for me, it means for you and everybody else too. And you can take that to the bank. So if we take the word of God and we prove what the Holy Spirit has said to us subjectively by the word of God, now we have subjective truth and objective truth coming together, and now we have what's absolute or proven truth. So I'm going to take the word of God and do that, if I may. Going back briefly to our text, the Hebrew word for man, I told you earlier, is inushe. It comes from the Hebrew root word Adam, and it means literally a son of Adam or also a son of man. And figuratively or substantially, it means a weak, frail mortal. So God was looking for a son of man or a son of Adam. And even though he'd be a weak, frail mortal, he would still make up the hedge and he would still stand in the gap and he would save his church from destruction. The Bible proves that Jesus is that man. We get to Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, this is just a very quick Bible study, so hold on to your seats. In Luke chapter 3, Jesus is identified in the lineage of Adam himself in Luke 3, 38. So Jesus Christ is literally a son of Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15 and 45, it's also found in Romans 5, 12 through 21. Paul identifies Jesus as the last Adam who saves us from the fall of the first Adam. The first man, Adam was just our physical forebear, but the second Adam is a life-giving spirit, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the man. Now, in the Old Testament, King David, how many of you know King David? You think he's a good guy? That he's probably a prophet from God? King David in the Old Testament, not only King David, but Jeremiah, ever heard of him? I know you have. How about Ezekiel? That's the book that we're in right now. How about Daniel? 
These are the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. Did you know that all of them prophesied that the Messiah, when he came, would be identified as the Son of Man? That's in the Old Testament. When the Messiah comes in the New Testament, he'll be identified as the Son of Man, who is also the Son of Adam. So now we get to the Gospels. All through the Gospels, Jesus called himself the Son of Man in order to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. 30 times in Matthew's Gospel, 14 times in Mark's Gospel, 26 times in Luke's Gospel, 11 times in John's Gospel, 81 times overall in the Gospels alone, Jesus declared to be the Son of Man. Everybody say, Jesus, Jesus. you the man. Did you know that even Pilate declared in John 19 and 5, Behold, you guys remember this? Behold the man. Jesus is going to the cross of Calvary to die. And the governor of the Roman provincial government said, Behold the man. Indisputable proof that Jesus is the man. We get past the Gospels. And we go to Acts chapter 7, verse 56, where Stephen was being stoned to death. Being full of the Holy Ghost, he looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus. He saw Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And this is what that man said. He said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Jesus is that man. So we go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. John the Revelator is on the Isle of Patmos. He's also full of the Holy Ghost, like Stephen was. And on the Lord's Day, he saw a vision of seven candlesticks representing all spirit-filled churches in the last days. And this is what he said in Revelation 1.13. He said, I saw in the midst of the seven lampstands one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. And the man that he saw was Jesus. Jesus. From the first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible, it is boldly declared in the revelation of God himself that Jesus Christ is the man. I know I'm being aggressive, but I'm going to tell you again, you better believe it. Jesus is the man, and you had best believe that. Now, why is this so important? Why am I being so emphatic? I just want to give you one reason. I, I could probably preach all night on all of the different reasons why it's important for Jesus to be the man. But let me just give you one that I think is more important maybe than all the others. If Jesus defeated all the forces of hell as a God, then we could be thankful for what he did, but we could not follow in his steps. We couldn't. Because he did it as a God, and we're not gods. We are men. But if Jesus defeated all of the forces of hell as a man, Further, if Jesus defeated all of the forces of hell as a weak, frail, mortal man, then we can follow in his steps, and we can defeat all of the forces of hell too. If the same spirit that dwelt in Jesus Christ dwells in you, then as men and women of God, we can stand against all the forces of hell and we can defeat them. We can make up the hedge and we can stand in the gap and we can be a part of Jesus' salvation of his last day church. But first you have to believe that Jesus is the man. Jesus is the man. All right, I'm going to close now. I'm going to go to the, I'm going to go to the last sentence the Holy Spirit gave me. The Holy Spirit said, since Jesus came, 
He has been raising up men and women to stand with him. Wow. Since Jesus came, this prophecy will never happen again. Where God looks for a man and can't find one. Why? Sentence number two. Because Jesus is the man. And now, since Jesus has come, sentence number three. Jesus is raising up men and women to stand with him. Who are these men and women who stand with Jesus? Well, they're commonly called Christians today, but that's not what Jesus called them. The word Christian doesn't appear in the Bible until Acts chapter 11. Jesus had been gone for 13 years, resurrected, seated at the right hand of the Father. He had been there for 13 years. Before, in the city of Antioch, the disciples were called Christians for the first time. So Jesus didn't call them Christians. Jesus called them disciples. Disciples. What Jesus is looking for is disciples. The word Christian has become a really weak word nowadays, Pastor. There, there are Christian Democrats in Germany who are just politicians. They don't stand up for Jesus at all. There are Christian phalangists in Lebanon who will cut your head off if you tell them that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And yet they call themselves Christians, Christian phalangists. It's, I love being a Christian. I love the word Christian. I just want you to know that Jesus has always expected more from you, Pastor, than having somebody out in the world call you a Christian. Jesus wants you to be a disciple. Now, what is a disciple? It is the Greek word methetes, and it means somebody who agrees with and adheres to all the teachings of the master. Both sides of the definition have to be there. You have to agree with and adhere to all the teachings of the master. That means if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to agree with everything Jesus said. Not part of it, not a little bit of it. You agree with everything Jesus said. And if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you also have to adhere to everything he taught to the best of your ability. That means you have to follow his commands. That's why we need grace. Because we can't even begin to do that on our own. But God gives us grace so that we can serve God acceptably. If you don't agree with everything Jesus said, don't call yourself a disciple because you're not. And don't get mad at me because I tell you that because Jesus is the one who said it. Right, Pastor? Jesus is the one who said it. Jesus is looking for disciples, men and women, who will stand with him in making up the hedge and standing in the gap. And what Jesus is looking for, beloved, he's looking for disciples. And when we are disciples, if Jesus says build a wall here, we will build it here with him. Why? Because Jesus is the man. That's why we don't have to have any more reason than that. If Jesus says stand in the gap over there, the whole church will stand in the gap over there for the simple reason that Jesus said so, and Jesus is the man. And we don't need any more reason than that. I'll preach to your pastor for one minute. If Jesus says, Pastor, there's a gaping hole in your church doctrine, and people are falling through it, and they're being lost, and I expect you to plug that hole by your preaching, let me tell you what you will do, Pastor. You will plug that hole immediately, and you'll do that only because Jesus told you to, and Jesus is the man. Not the Pentecost Church of God doctrinal statement or anything else that you belong to. Not club membership. Jesus is the man. And you'll do what he says simply because he is that. Let me preach to the church for just one minute. If Jesus says to the church, your church is under attack and the enemy is pouring in, but we're going to stand in the gap and we're going to guard this church with our lives. I'll tell you what we will do. We will stand in that gap with Jesus and we will guard this church with our very lives. Why? Because Jesus said so. And that's all the reason we need. 
Jesus is the man. So the Holy Spirit gave me a new working definition of what it means to be a disciple. What is a disciple? A disciple is a man or a woman who stands with Jesus. That's all. You have just made up a decision. You've made a decision that you're going to stand with you. I made a decision when I did this research. I made up my mind right then. I entered into a covenant that I'm going to stand with Jesus through thick and thin. That's what a disciple is. Somebody who stands with him through thick and thin. And I'm going to stand with Jesus till the day I die. And after I die and I get up to heaven, I don't know everything that's going to go on there. During the judgment seat of the Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb, all that stuff that's going on in preparation for the tribulation down here. But there's one thing I do know. When I get to heaven, I'm going to stand with Jesus there. And we don't know everything that's going to go on in eternity future. You study the book of Revelation. It tells us that the kings of the world are going to go out and bring the treasures of the universe into God. I don't know what we're going to be doing in eternity future. I don't know where I'm going to be going. But there's one thing I do know. Wherever I go, anywhere in the ever-expanding universe... I'm going to stand with Jesus. Even if I'm looking at James Kirk, I'm standing with Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. Has everybody got that? And Jesus is looking for men and women who will stand with him. So, I want to tell you a little story before I pray for you. This is an old story. It actually goes back to uh, 1854. And it's a story about a man named George Duffield. And I start telling the story. Some of you, especially if you've been around Pentecostal churches for a while, uh, you're going to remember this. His name was George Duffield. And um, he was a pastor in Michigan. And he was an abolitionist. So he opposed slavery. And he worked for the Underground Railroad. And his best friend in life was another minister. His name was Dudley Ting, T-Y-N-G. And both of them worked for the Underground Railroad as abolitionists, and they loved setting people free, and they worked all through the state of Michigan. In one of their exploits, uh, Reverend Ting got shot in the chest, uh, a mortal wound, mortal injury. And uh, George Duffield went back to find him, and he found his best friend folded up on the ground with a mortal wound to to his chest, and he picked him up in his arms and began to hold him there on the ground, and Reverend Ting recovered just enough to speak a couple of words, and these were the words that he said. He reached up and he grabbed George Duffield by the lapels of his coat and pulled him down, and he said, George, George, you must tell our people to stand up. Stand up for Jesus like soldiers of the cross, and he died. Well, George Duffield couldn't shake it. All through 1854, 55, 56, 57. One day in 1858, he was dwelling on it and thinking about it, and the Lord gave him the words to this classic hymn, which all of you have probably heard before. And I hope it resonates in your heart, too. Jesus is looking for men and women who will stand with him. And here's what George Duffield wrote in 1858, the first line. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner, it must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory his army shall he lead, till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. Stand up, 
Stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor. Each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger. Be never wanting there. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. The strife will not be long. This day the noise of battle. The next the victor's song. To those who vanquish evil, a crown of life shall be. They with the king of glory shall reign eternally. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. That's what disciples do. That's what we do. We stand up for Jesus. Through thick and thin, we stand with him. From the start to the end, we stand with him. Because that's what disciples do.